Hello and welcome to History for Weirdos. We're your hosts, Andrew and Stephanie. And each week, we're going to take you on a journey into the strange, obscure, and relentlessly entertaining corners of human history. Now listen up, friends, because it's about to get weird. to episode 64 of History for Weirdos. We're glad to be back as always, fam. As always, and we're also extremely humbled and excited by the growth of the podcast. We've been sharing a little bit of that growth on Instagram, on our Instagram stories. If you don't follow us, you can find us at History for Weirdos on Instagram. But tell me, love, where... Where are we on the charts right now? And I have a huge smile on my face because yes. <laughs> it, this has been a wild like 10 days. That's when I started noticing the spike in the analytics. So first of all, welcome to a lot of new listeners. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've had a, the biggest growth we've ever had in just a matter of days, which is pretty incredible. Um, but to answer your question, Stephanie, today I found out that we are number one in history podcasts in the United States on Spotify. Damn. Number one. And that Woo-hoo! is 100% thanks to you guys listening. Yes. And I want to second that welcome to all the new folks. We've gotten so many recent um, comments on Instagram and lovely messages and emails that folks are just finding the podcast and binging it. That means so, so much to us. Everyone who listens, like from the OGs to the newbies, you all really keep us motivated and make this podcast possible yeah you guys are awesome and stay weird yeah be weird with us um (laughs) as we enter a new weird story for this week which is on you today babe yes oh it's on me i feel like we make that joke every single week i know (laughs) we need a new joke we really do we really do tell me what are we discussing today Well, today, I'll be covering one of the more controversial leaders in English history. Oh. Yes. Like a historian? No, he's a leader. Okay. Yeah, no, he's like... he's Just like a political leader? A political leader, yes. Yes. I thought it was like a very controversial history professor at Oxford or something. (laughs) No. Very different term. Incredibly different. (laughs) He is viewed today as both a successful military commander, yet... A harsh, brutal leader who did not care about his subjects. Damn. That's not the vibe. Was he a hero or a villain? And you guys can tell me at the end of this episode. Okay. But don't worry. We'll be looking into his story and his arc, narrative arc, Mm -hmm. so to speak, in great detail. So he lived in a very transformational time in the shaping of both the English and European natural and cultural identities. He was known in his time as Edward of Woodstock, yet we know him today as Edward the Black Prince. Oh, that's a pretty cool nickname. The Black Prince? Yeah, I don't know. Or Woodstock. Both, Both. technically. Both are very cool. (laughs) And before we even move on, I have to mention two things. Number one, the Woodstock. His name has nothing to do with the concert of 1969. Are you sure? I feel like that should be rather obvious, but I (laughs) needed to make that exceptionally clear. It's in reference to where he was born, which is a 
I guess like a city or a suburb of Oxford mm-hmm. um, in England. And number two, his sobriquet, the Black, comes from the black armor that he would wear into battle. It's and actually, interestingly enough, this wouldn't be used in like wide circulation until about 150 to 200 years after his death. Okay, yeah. So that is interesting. So it was very specific to him at the time to wear black armor. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that was it. But no one called him the black. He was known as, there was a, his father was also named Edward. Yeah. And so, you know, he was known as just Edward of uh, Woodstock. I was like, where is he from again? I literally just said it. <laughs> also, hold on. I have to interrupt you really quick. Of course. Andrew is being such a trooper, everyone. He has been sick this week, and I still selfishly did not offer to do this week's episode. <laughs> so he's, I know. he's recovering from being sick, and I just wanted to say, like, one, thank you for being such a trooper and come showing up for the weirdos, and two, um, we, we will all be very patient with you. <laughs> yeah. As you sniffle through the episode. I know, I'm sniffling. I was like in bed all day on Friday. Yeah. So it's it's pretty amazing that I'm actually, I have my voice back, one, and number two, that I, I had the energy to like put this together. Because... It speaks like so much to my laziness <laughs> yeah. that I wasn't like, you know what, babe, don't worry about it. I got it this week. Like it didn't even cross my mind until just now. <laughs> As I'm like giving my episode. <laughs> I would say done. the thought it's the thought that counts, but I don't think it applies here. Oh well. <laughs> oh well, anyways, moving on. <laughs> Go back to doing your job. Okay. So before we jump into the life of Edward the Black, uh let's see at the stage for what's actually happening in terms of international affairs at this point in time. Mm-hmm. So the thrones of both England and France had been tied together since 1066 when the Norman lord William the Conqueror conquered england dope you guys probably have heard of william the conqueror if not then just google it i don't i'm I'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole (laughs) (laughs) so um if you didn't know though normandy is a part of france along its northwestern coast on the english channel that was settled by vikings as far Mm -hmm. back as the 800s the normans right the normans yeah Mm -hmm. so the vikings and the native franks intermarried and produced a hybrid culture called the normans Mm -hmm. so Go on. I was just going to brag that I've been to Normandy. I know. I hate you. I really <laughs> wish I had been. I know it's it's really interesting, too, that, like, obviously Normandy would play a very, very big part in World War II. Right. As well, in, as in American history. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, further integration would occur between the Normans, French, and the English, blending their cultures together. Mm-hmm. And at this point in time, like, around the the 10 you know or the 11th century 12th century 13th century there really isn't a strong national identity in either france or england and generally people were just subservient to their local lord you know i.e feudalism okay i could go into this a lot deeper but i won't because that truly is a never-ending rabbit hole so all we have to know though is eventually in the 1100s and 1200s the angevin empire would control large swaths of Western France as well as of all of England and portions of Eastern Ireland. And then have like nominal control over Scotland and the rest of Ireland as well. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the house of Plantagenet. So it was an English house mm-hmm. through the Norman conquest. It gets really complicated. But I'm just, already lost. Yeah, but just know that like <laughs> essentially like England and France are kind of all blending together. Like, Got it. And there's very no, there's like essentially zero national identity. Okay. That's, those are the important like points to this. 
We know that over time, the English crown would lose land bit by bit, and by 1337, only the southwestern portion of France called Gascony was still under English control. So, again, all of this to say that tensions were really high, and they had been high for centuries. Okay. Throw in a succession crisis to the French throne in 1328, and boy, we have a full-blown international crisis Mm. that will soon result in a little conflict called the Hundred Years' War. Ooh, that's ringing a bell. That's ringing, yeah, right? Yes. (laughs) And that is the majority of our story here takes place in the backdrop of the Hundred Years' War. Okay. That's where our guy... Edward the Black comes into play. Exactly. He's a, he plays a very crucial part in the early portions of this war. Okay. And really the and I'm not again not going to go into a rabbit hole but really the Hundred Years War is like it's more accurately described as like a series of a few wars kind of like all within like the like 116ish year period. Right, but 100 years sounds cooler than 116 Exactly, and that's yeah. why it's called the 100 Years War, as opposed yeah. to like, oh, this war, followed by this war, followed, followed by this, this year, war, yeah. war, and followed by the fourth war, whatever. Um, and we're really just focusing on the first portion of it, because of our, our uh, protagonist, Edward the Black. So long story short, the English monarch Edward III should have been given the throne, the French throne, at this point under French law, okay. due to his... I think his mother or his grandmother, I didn't write down in my notes, um, but his his mother had like French ancestry or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. So, but French nobles wanted it to go to a native Frenchman. So side note, this would set the stage for English monarchs claiming France as part of their holdings from here until 1801. Yeah. I was just thinking that's like a very common theme. Yeah. For like forever. Like even Henry Henry VIII yes. would, would claim it. Um, and then there was only two brief periods of time that they didn't, but it's not that important. Also, interesting side note, another side note, so side note, side note, every single English monarch since 1066 up until this point primarily spoke French rather than English. Whoa. Yeah. Um, in fact, this wouldn't change until Henry IV ascended the throne in 1399. So a period of 333 years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Primarily spoke French. That's so interesting. Yeah, French was their native tongue as opposed to English. Wow. And again, it just goes to show how blended these cultures were. Yeah. So I feel like I've set the stage well enough to introduce our main character into the narrative. Edward of Woodstock was born in 1330 in Woodstock, Oxfordshire, England, to King Edward III and Philippa of Hainault. Mm. So Philippa, always a good name. Philippa, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like Philip. Uh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so many names like that. Juan, uh, Robert. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh. <laughs> and in case you guys didn't know, um, and you can tell by Hainault, uh, it's she was a German. I could not tell actually, so thank you. Wait, really? Yeah, it oh. sounded. <laughs> random to me it's super random yes she's not important for the rest of the story poor philippa besides giving birth to our protagonist okay (laughs) so at the age of two in march of 1333 when our uh, protagonist was just a wee little lad Mm -hmm. he was made the earl of chester by his father at the age of six in february 1337 he was made the duke of cornwall Wow, he's really rising the ranks. He's really rising the ranks, totally on his own merit. Yeah, he must uh, be a hard-working toddler. I, I know, right? <laughs> you know, interestingly, this is the first time a duchy is created 
So that would make Edward the first duke in English history. What? Yeah. Which I didn't, which I feel like is really weird because I, I tried to fact check this and it, and every time it was always mentioned, oh, this is the first time a duchy was created. I'm like, so does that make him the first duke at the age of six? Like, so I, that's what yeah, I infer. Yeah, what does that mean to create a duchy? And yeah, does that imply that no one held the title of duke prior? Yeah, and in what, England. And what prompted the creation of this duchy in England? You know, that's a good question. I think it was just made to give have him be the heir apparent. Okay. Um at the time. And interestingly though, it's a great question that the, um this tradition would dictate that the Duke of Cornwall would be held from here on out by the eldest son of the English and then even later the British monarch and it's still in place to this day. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, so the current Duke of Cornwall is the eldest son of the current king. I don't know their names. It's um uh, William. William. Right? Mhm. Not William the Conqueror. No. <laughs> yeah. I know, it's funny. I know, like, these, like, I know a ton about, like, you know, Alexander the Great and his father, Philip, and then, like, the current monarchs of, like, England. I'm like, mm, those people. It's yeah. not Elizabeth. Elizabeth's sons. <laughs> Elizabeth's sons and then her grandsons. Yeah. So, also speaking of tradition, he was given the title Prince of Wales at the age of 12 in May of 1343. Oh, snap. So he has a lot of stuff going on, and he's only 12 years old at this point. Oh my gosh, the, like what a busy schedule. Yeah. So obviously, <laughs> not necessarily he's getting these things on his own merit, but still important to mention is this is, would shape his future. Mm, I oh. bet. His father, obviously, was essentially grooming him to rule as he was the heir apparent. So... By this point, the Hundred Years' War is raging in France, and Edward sails with his father across the, the channel. Mm-hmm. And so his first big test comes when he's only 16 years old. Oh my gosh. In 1346, at the Battle of Cressy. This would be the biggest, or one of the biggest, and one of the most important battles of the entire Hundred Years' War. And oh Ferris, this is probably like the first major land battle. Um, Edward would command thousands of troops and was put in charge of the right vanguard, a very prestigious assignment um, for the time. The 16-year-old? The 16-year-old. Oh, my gosh. So that also means, like, you know, his father must have had at least some sort of, like, faith in him. Yeah, Uh, he must have displayed some sort of talent or wisdom or leadership abilities. And we'll see later on that he certainly does. Okay. What were you doing at 16? Uh, not commanding a vanguard of the English against the French. Yeah, I don't even know what a vanguard is, and I'm almost 30, so I definitely wasn't doing it's that like, either. It's like the right side of, even going back to antiquity, it was like a lot of the times, like the right side of the army was like really important. That's where like um, like the strongest soldiers would go, oh. like even in, in ancient Greece and stuff like that. Awesome. Yeah. And I guess it's, I, I don't know as much about medieval battle history. I know. Screw me, right? <laughs> You're such a loser. <laughs> such a loser. But I'm assuming it's it's something similar. <laughs> I literally just said I don't even know what a vanguard is. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not judging. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. So he fights with courage. And long story short, the English army routes the French one despite being outnumbered roughly two to one. Wow. And... At one point, he's actually knocked off his horse and is rescued by his standard bearer. He ends up being fine, but what's interesting is, like, when word reached uh, his father, Edward III, he does not send help. In fact, just says something along the lines of, he can now win his spurs. 
like in reference to the knighthood that he was just recently given oh my gosh so he's, he's like, like he can now earn it, it. yeah he's like figure it out now oh like actually earn what you've been given okay interesting parenting technique like i <laughs> in principle i understand but in practice in this particular instance not necessarily a big supporter of that that's a huge risk <laughs> yeah especially because he's the heir apparent yes he's the prince of wales Again, it might be indicative that his father had a lot of faith in him. Right. But still, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. And so um, when his father met our Edward after the battle was over, they embraced and Father Edward declared that he had fought bravely and proved himself worthy. Um, I really wanted to write Daddy Edward, but I was going to I was actually thinking that and I was so disappointed. I was like, not Daddy Edward, not Papa Edward, not Papi Edward. I I almost put it, but I was like, no, that's not that's not the vibe. That's not appropriate. It's not appropriate. For History for Weirdos, the extremely (laughs) professional and accurate history podcast. Well, accurate. Yes. Professional. So after this battle, he created the motto Hom- oh, and I'm going to butcher this because it's in German. Hamot ich denne, meaning courage I serve. Although this has been called into question. Why is it in German? Uh, again, it's kind of like this blending of cultures. German was like a really big portion of like English monarchy because like of going back to like the Anglo-Saxon days, I think. Oh, and I guess you said and his then, mom was German. And his mom was yeah. German, yeah. So again, like kind of like the mixture of okay. different cultures. So regardless... This has been called into question whether he was actually given this or not. There's a little bit of like a dispute in the historical narrative. Mm-hmm. But regardless of all of that, the motto Ich Dien, German for just I serve, is mm-hmm. still used by like the Prince of Wales to this day. What? So kind so whether it happened or not, it's still important. Yeah. No, that's really important. So our Edward will only play a minor part in this next um, part of the saga, I guess. But it's important to mention just because of the lasting impact. So essentially, after a nearly year-long siege, the English army would take the port city of Calais in the following year of 1347. Uh, This was strategically important as this was the closest point between France and England. And the English would actually hold on to this portion for the next 200 plus years. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. Edward would return to England after this and there would be a lull in the hostilities weirdly enough he did fight a naval battle against Castilian mercenary slash pirate ships in which he and his men actually boarded and took a Spanish vessel as their own right when the ship they were on was like just began to sink oh my gosh yeah and it was actually better because Castilian ships were far bigger uh-huh. and they were like they kind of had the best navy i think at this at time time yeah and so it was it was kind of an honor like they almost upgraded that ship that's so <laughs> they cool. left with like a, a mid-tier ship they came back with like you know a top tier ship this is a fun side quest yeah fun side quest <laughs> oh yeah and he's only 20 years old at that point so he's done a lot already yeah that's pretty badass yeah so for the next five years or so, both kingdoms were pretty broke and hostilities were at a minimum. And that's really kind of how this Hundred Years' War went. It was like intense fighting and then lull. Intense fighting, lull. Right, because wars are expensive. Wars are very expensive. Mm-hmm. And both kingdoms were broke. So, But, you know, that essentially changed in 1355 when Father Edward... Poppy ta- Edward. Poppy Edward. Poppy Eduardo. <laughs> tasked our Edward... To lead an army into southwestern France. 
Oh, snap. Yeah. He essentially went on a spree of pillaging throughout the region of Aquitaine, fighting anyone who opposed him. Mm-hmm. This didn't really have a grand or strategic purpose. Um, the English army and Gasconite allies went through the countryside and took crops, livestock, precious stones, metals, and even rugs for themselves uh, when they were either going through the countryside or pillaging the village. Good rugs are expensive. Yeah, they actually were pretty important at this time. <laughs> they still are expensive. Yeah, they're still as expensive, but they provided like warmth. Yeah, people would put them on the walls. Exactly. Yeah. So this sort of offensive Fabian war of attrition strategy was pretty commonplace for medieval warfare, even though it seems like a war crime to modern audiences. Yeah. Uh, however, these events started to give Edward a little bit of a reputation throughout France, and that's important for later on. Okay. After all, these events, uh, or during these events, he reduced five towns and 17 castles to nothing. Oh my god. A particular brutal form of economic warfare, I'd say. Wow, 17 castles. Yeah. The following year would prove to be one of the most important, if not, or not only Edward's life, but one of the most important of the entirety of the Hundred Years' War. So Edward was at the head of 6,000 troops, and they were marching north through France. Mm-hmm. Edward continued, continued to pillage and fight on an offensive war of attrition, taking more towns, fortifications, castles, what have you. Mm-hmm. However, this time, King John II of France gathered a large omi, omi, army to <laughs> oppose him. Edward's force of 6,000 were up against John's force of roughly 15,000. Oh. So he's like outnumbered two and a half times to one but what happens next is kind of insane on september 19th 1356 the french would assault the english position in four waves in what would be known as the battle of potier Mm. very long story short edward's forces would actually prevail oh my gosh so during the finest and again like i mentioned it happened in four different waves of assaults Okay. Because, like, I mean, the, the French just had so many more people. Yeah. Or so many more soldiers, I should say. So, during the final French assault, Edward used a modified pincer move to crush the enemy force and send them packing. Mm-hmm. So, and again, like, the pincer move has been around since antiquity. Time I, immemorial. I am familiar with the pincer move. <laughs> yeah. Because you have, um, shall I say encouraged me to watch youtube videos with you displaying the pincer move <laughs> yeah. and who was most famous for using the pincer move julius caesar no augustus no wasn't a roman but it was against <laughs> rome darn it is it germanicus or no it's the guy before who's it's oh. like 200 years before that oh my god i know his name it's like starts with an h i know i know and he's a cannibal okay just say it then it's hannibal Ugh. And he's not a cannibal. That's just a reference to like because the cannibal. Of the okay, the cannibalism lines. threw me off. I was like, "Who's a cannibal?" Yeah, that's just ironic. That Hannibal, the cannibal. <laughs> this is no. my life, weirdos. This is my <laughs> <Yeah>. life. <laughs> Getting random history quizzes from my husband <laughs> and then failing them. <laughs> Failure. <laughs> no. Okay. Okay, but guys. But in all seriousness, no. The the. the Carthaginian general Hannibal was not actually a cannibal. I was just referencing Silence of the Lambs. But he did use the pincer move. But he did use the pincer move. Against and the Romans. Against the Romans at the Battle of Cannae. Uh, 
in the Second Punic War and like 70,000 Romans died or something like absurd like that. That's I a mean, lot. Estimates vary widely, but it was like between like 40 to 70,000. And then Edward has used it here. Yes, against John. And they win. They actually win, even despite being heavily outnumbered. So, but even more shocking than all of this is that they actually capture King John oh, in the gosh. battle. Uh, but because Edward followed a very strict form of chivalry, he treated the French king with respect, even helping the king remove his armor and entertained him along with other French nobles at dinner that okay. night. And this was the era of chivalry. Yes. So that makes sense. Yes. This whole outcome is that is just really insane when put into context that before the battle, Edward was actually trying to negotiate a surrender, but the two sides couldn't come to an agreement. So they were forced to fight. And then Edward won against overwhelming odds. Wow. So this was not only a high point in Edward's military career, but just for the entire English side of the conflict. Right. Afterwards, he took the French king as prisoner back to England and enacted a temporary truce to the ongoing hostilities. Again, that's kind of becomes a theme here. Mm-hmm. When he got back to England, he partook in lots of festivals and games in honor of the victories that they had in France. It is said that he got into so much debt funding games and giving gifts that he offered all of his income-producing lands for four years to the to the creditors should he die on the battlefield. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, that's how much debt he was in. Wow. He so, partied hard. Great military commander doesn't know how to manage finances whatsoever. Yeah. And again, that's also a theme moving forward. <laughs> so in 1359, he sailed back to France to oversee yet again another treaty, which was signed the following year in 1360. The Treaty of Bretigny. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Where? Right there. Uh, no, I don't know. But... Yeah. <laughs> but that's just going to be my anglicized way of saying it. I'm sure that's not it. I'm sure it's not either. It must be like... Bettini. No, you just made it worse. Yeah. So anyways, <laughs> this treaty essentially partitioned the southwestern quarter of France to England. A like very big portion of territory. Bigger than what they had before the war started. Mm-hmm. Also, the French had to pay three million écus for the ransom of their king. Oh. And... And un- That's so sad. Give us our king back. I know. It's like three million echoes. I don't know what an echo is. But interestingly, though, one in- unintended side effect of this was the minting of the very first francs, which would be used as official currency in France on and off until the adoption of the euro in 1999. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the first francs were minted because of this in 1360. So this is where the 31-year-old Edward decided to marry his cousin, right. Jean the Countess of Kent, who was a divorcee. Oh, scandalous. Yes. In fact, I put very taboo at the time in my notes. Yeah. And it's true. They technically needed a dispensation from Pope Innocent IV. Yeah. But failed to obtain one before getting married. You know who else failed to get one? Sofia Vergara. (laughs) She tried to get a dispensation um, from the Pope when she married um, the guy that she's married to now. That's so because wild. she'd been married before, and she also failed. <laughs> well, you know, 
The popes don't give those out freely. Yeah, so Sophia Vergara and Edward the Black, they have more in common that you than you would think. <laughs> they have more in common than you would think. So what's really interesting about this whole marriage is like I could find barely anything on it. Like but their courtship, like what they were like being married, very little about it. Because if they if she was a divorcee and they needed that dispensation, I wonder why he chose her. Yeah, I I don't know. I couldn't tell you. But they ended up having two kids together. Okay. So now Edward at this point was as popular as ever. This is like the high point in his popularity. His father gave him a massive reward. He would be the prince of Aquitaine and Gascony, meaning that all those lands that mm-hmm. I mentioned in southwestern France now belong to him. Damn. So basically all the English lands in France outside of Calais belong to him. Okay. So technically it belonged to the king, but like he, he paid like an, like it was weird, like an ounce of gold a year to the king for him being the prince. It's like it's kind of like the equivalent of like a one dollar a year salary. Yeah, it seemed like. So he departed to the region in February of 1363 to establish his court at the city of Bordeaux. However, he really never really got the hang of ruling. Oh, yeah, that's an important like, skill to have. It's kind of important, and he never really nailed it. <laughs> Tell us more. So he failed at least two notable mediations between. Uh, very important subjects of his. He gave out official offices as favors, and corruption seemed to kind of be part of the course uh, during his oversight. Oh. And he had open hostilities with numerous French nobles. Oof. And most notably, he levied high taxes amongst the populace. Okay, so the people do not like him. The people do not like him in France. Uh, and also add, add all this to his already his reputation of like going through the countryside, pillaging villages. Yeah. So, not great. In 1367, so a few years later, he would fight his last major battle of his life, and pretty much everything from here is just goes downhill for him. So on April 3rd of that year, his it's it's very this, the whole backstory of this is very strange, and I just didn't write it because it just seems like it's a huge tangent. But generally... <laughs> He came to the support of one of his friends, Peter of Castile, also known as Peter the Cruel. That's a good friend to have. Yeah, right? Um, And he fought on his behalf at the Battle of Najera in the First Castilian Civil War. So, yeah, not great time for Castile. Yeah. Um, It's really interesting, too, because... Like it didn't see like it. It really seemed like he just wanted to, to do this because he missed like fighting in like major battles. That's a really good observation because he sucks at governing. Right, but he's a brilliant military commander. Right, is that kind of like? Um, am I remembering correctly that Mark Anthony was similar? You're so spot on. I was just about to mention that he really reminds me of Mark Anthony. Oh my gosh! Yeah. How funny. Yeah. We spend a lot of time together. We do. We do. <laughs> Um, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because I was literally about to say that. That's so, so cool. Same thing. Mark Anthony was like, oh, this is so boring. Like, I just want to fight. He was terrible at administration. Yeah. Whereas, like, Augustus loved that. And Augustus wasn't that great at fighting, but he is like, oh, my boy Marcus Agrippa. He is very good at fighting. Right, right. Boom. So, this time, though, his forces outnumbered the enemy forces, so it really just wasn't even, like, a fair fight. I okay. mean, the, the battle was a little bit intense, but they won a decisive victory. And this time, though, however, it, it really took a toll on his finances and his health. 
Oh. Yeah. Um, he would contract some sort of disease. We think it's like edema. And edema is um, like pooling of the blood. Yeah, we think that's what it ha- he has. And it, it kind of goes... He has this for like the rest of his life. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah, like on and off. But... It's just like liquid retention. Exactly. Yeah. So not not like a pleasant thing. No, that would definitely inhibit mobility. Yeah, and it does. Like in, like at certain points, he can't even ride a horse anymore. He has to be carried like on a litter. Oh, that must be so like embarrassing. Not that it's embarrassing to have an edema, but for this like hyper macho warrior guy. Exactly. To be like, I can't even ride my horse, which is such a big part of my identity. Right, that was a huge portion of his identity. So he got back to Aquitaine and pretty much everything was just in disarray. The mercenaries <laughs> that he used uh, were owed money. And since they couldn't pay, <laughs> they started going around like, okay, well, I'm going to take stuff. Oh. Yeah. Um... He had to like beg them to leave. And eventually they did. Um, in order to resolve the crisis, though, Edward tried to raise even more taxes. But this just incensed all the lords. That's not how you do it. <laughs> yeah. And they took their complaints to the king of France. Yes. Um, so the king of France sent a summon to Edward demanding that he appear before him in Paris to receive judgment. <laughs> and also this kind of go, and this might sound confusing, but like technically, and this is really strange. And this goes back all the way to even William the Conqueror. Uh, even though when William the Conqueror was king of England, he had, you know, Norman possessions. And as his Norman possessions were technically subservient to the king of France, and it wasn't necessarily English possessions. That's so weird. It's, it, he, so he was both like an equal of the king of France, but also subservient. And so that, of course, led to centuries of like, that makes zero sense that in practical in, yeah. in like a practical way, it makes zero sense. So it, it led to centuries of conflict. And again, this, and here we are. With more conflict. Yeah. Edward's response was pretty, like, badass, though. He essentially said, sure, I'll do so wearing armor and at the head of 60,000 men. Oh, snap. So, oh, sure, I'll show up, but I'm going to be rolling deep. Yeah, exactly. So, but also, I don't think he would have even had the ability to have 60,000 men. Yeah. Because his region, uh, his grip on the region had slipped and many lords were just in open rebellion at this time. Mm Mm-hmm. So, and events would occur now that would stain his legacy. So in 1370, the city of Limoges would, I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but it and just, you know, plain old English would be like Limoges, Limo, Limogies. Oh, you really didn't need to do that to yourself. Yeah. We could have just pretended. Okay. Li, okay. Limoges. Limoges. <laughs> Limoges would be treacherously surrendered by the French uh, or to the French, rather, by the bishop Jean de Morat de Croix, who had been one of the prince's trusted friends. Oh, snap. He got yeah, betrayed? he got betrayed by a friend. And he swore that he would have his revenge. And according to the medieval historian Jean Frossard, he did just that. <gasps> when Edward retook the town, thousands of people were slaughtered. And that was the narrative for centuries. Okay. But interestingly, as late as 2008, we know, based off of a lot of analyses, including just a letter that just happened to be discovered that was written by none other than Edward the Black. Wow. Um, 
we think that the number was actually closer to 300, which was almost entirely comprised of troops garrisoned in the town. So, which makes more sense. Which yeah. makes, yeah, way more sense. And changes the story. Yeah, and completely changed the narrative from, like, a complete slaughter of, like, men, women, and children to, like, essentially all men at arms. Right. Still a slaughter, but not nearly as bad. Uh-huh. So, again, thing, and but, like, it doesn't really matter what happened. The story is that thousands of people were slaughtered. Yeah, and that's the story that got out and... Exactly. Yeah. Things let's just say, aren't really going well for Edward, and now they even get even worse. Yeah. So the next year, in 1371, his eldest son, also named Edward, they're really big on originality here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he dies at the age of five. Five years old? Yeah, poor little nugget. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Do we know of what? I didn't look into it. Okay, probably some sort of sickness. Yeah. Shortly after this, our Edward returns to England for the final time. He does try to go one more time back to France with his father, but uh, due to winds or something, they never actually make it. Excuse me. The rest of his life is weirdly lived in somewhat obscurity given his like larger-than-life nature. Yeah. Though we do know that he lined politically with helping the common person. How so? He, oh, it goes back to like, I, I didn't really go into this very much because again it's kind of like one of those tangents but we know that he lined against like lancaster factions within parliament okay and it seemed really boring and i just didn't want to go into it honestly yeah he just wanted better like conditions for like common people okay that's just kind of like the the crux of it um his health really started to fail him, though, in 1376, and he became violently ill with dysentery. No. So much so that, like, there would be times where he would, like, pass out from the pain. And, oh, my God. And, like, people would thought he was dead. Oh, my God. Yeah, like, that happened multiple times that year. So, though, he was dying, and he knew that, and so he started just giving off gifts to his servants and soldiers whom he had fought with. Oh. And he even got to say a goodbye with to his father, whom he made promise to confirm his gifts, pay his debts quickly from his own estate, and protect his only remaining son, Richard. Oh. Edward of Woodstock, a.k.a. the Black Prince, died on June 8th, 1376, at the Palace of Westminster. Wow. Is it of dysentery, probably, or like the it effects? It was of dysentery. Yeah. Or, yeah, or either dysentery or the effects of dysentery. That's a rough way to go. It is. It is. And if you guys don't know what that is, you should Google it. It's not fun. No. I don't even want to say it. It's too... Ugh. So, he was buried at Canterbury Cathedral on September 29th, where his tomb effigy still exists to this day, along with his shield, helmet, and gauntlets. Wow. They're actually displayed, um, and you can see them if you ever go. He even has a poem inscribed around his effigy, and I, of course, will read it. Please do. Such as thou art, sometime was I. Such as I am, such shalt thou be. I thought little on thou art of death, so long as I enjoyed breath. On earth I had great riches, land, houses, great treasure, horses, money, and gold. But now a wretched captive am I. Deep in the ground, lo, here I lie. My beauty great is all quite gone. My flesh is wasted to the bone. Wow. So very uplifting. It You know, it's um, the November 6th right now. So fairly recently it was Dia de los Muertos. And that's 
a very similar theme to why we celebrate Day of the Dead, this reminder. Obviously, like, we believe that our ancestors can come back, but there's mm-hmm. also this theme of remembering that death comes for everyone. It is yeah. the ultimate equalizer. So that poem really reminded me of that. Yeah, it it really did. It was weirdly humbling. It's very humbling for for a man that didn't live a very humble life. It's so right. interesting. Exactly. So that, dear listeners, is the tale of Edward the Black Prince. And so the question here, was he a hero or was he a villain? Ooh. What say you, Stephanie? I say neither. That's what I was going to say. Oh my gosh. I'd say he leans hero, to be honest. Yeah. But he was a deeply flawed person, especially when it came to ruling. And I don't think he was necessarily bad. I just think he was very inadequate, but he yes. didn't make steps to, to shore up his inadequacies, right? Yeah. He didn't appoint the right people. Yeah. And that was on him. But he was a great military commander and he clearly cared about other people. Yeah. I think particularly within the context of his time period, mm-hmm. it does seem like he had more obvious morals than some people right. would have, particularly in those positions of power. But yeah, but he still had those shortcomings that he didn't really seem to care to correct, right? He was a little selfish and being like, I just want to go fight more. Exactly. Yeah. So Very I think interesting. A, a deeply flawed person overall, I'd say mostly good, but again, deeply flawed. I had never heard of Edward the Black, so thank you so much for yeah. sharing this. There's even a, a movie from like 2001, I believe, called A Knight's Tale. It's really cute. It has Heath Ledger in it. Yeah. And yeah, you've, yeah. Edward the Black Prince is in that movie. I don't think I've seen that since high school. Yeah, I haven't seen it, I don't think, since high school either, actually. Oh, we should rewatch it, because it was good, I remember. Yeah. But I don't remember Edward the Black Prince, so we're definitely going to check that out. Yeah, definitely. You know what's so interesting now that I just think about it? What? I think, and if I, the same actor who played Edward the Black Prince in that played Mark Antony in in the HBO series Rome. Shut up. Yes. Oh my God, that's so weird. How weird is that? Yeah. It's all connected. It's all connected, man. (laughs) Okay, so sources for this episode. We have like a really good source, Encyclopedia Britannica, always a solid one. Always. Got the BBC, the Historic UK, Mm -hmm. the History Press worldhistory.org, and of course, our favorite, Wikipedia. Amazing, babe. Thank you so much for sharing this story, and thank you, weirdos, for listening to this episode. Do not forget to share the podcast with friends, um, rate, review, subscribe, all of those good things that help the podcast continue to grow. I mean, it's already grown incredibly, so thank you for that. And until next time, weirdos. Until next time, adios. Yeah.